welcome to uh, number 12 of the Anatomy Cupboard. In praise of the zombie, or perhaps we could call it the anatomy of a monster. There's something a bit magical about zombies. I, I shouldn't like them, but I do. Well, perhaps more the idea of them than any scenario in which I'm somehow up close and personal with one. Cadavers, on the other hand, are, are certainly, by comparison, well, well, they're pretty boring. They're always passive, always lying on a slab waiting to be dissected, usually in a room that blows a Siberian wind. The cadaver might have been unwitting, as some anatomists have described it, but it always seems pretty willing. No fight in it at all. I'd recommend for anyone interested in the life of a cadaver, if that's not too much of an oxymoron, that rather wonderful little book, Stiff, written by the journalist Mary Roach. In it, she talks about everything from the fate of the decapitated head of Oliver Cromwell to the use of crash-test corpses, the use of cadaveric material to examine the ballistics of bullets, the idea of revivification after death and the new ways to preserve or dispose of dead bodies. I think the idea of revivification, even reincarnation, is worth a, another podcast. But as for the rest of it, I can sort of refer you to your own devices. Another piece of writing worth a look, I think, uh, is by Stephen Asma. Asma's a professor of philosophy at Columbia College, Chicago, and he published an interesting article called Monsters and the Moral Imagination, not to mention a, a book on the subject that he wrote called On Monsters and Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears. That's uh, under uh, Oxford University Press. And he links the monster more closely to us than different from us. And as a, an amoral creature, a kind of dark silhouette card of all of us. The business of separating out what was and what was not human, which I discussed a little in a couple of podcasts ago in this series, is a little bit tied into what is or is not monstrous. Now, I've also discussed in an earlier podcast, which was entitled The Genderization of Women, the ancient idea that subserviates women, really, uh, which relied a little on the idea of monstrosity. This pretty horrendous concept is a little complicated, so bear with me because it's worth repeating here that the uniqueness of women in their creation by God, their inherent or enomine difference and their exordinate separation from men was their eloco formation, there are all these Latin terms, outside of paradise, in effect that they were not a materia from the dust of the earth and a conceptia. It's important here to appreciate the Latin origins of these theological arguments. Now, in effect, uh, 
women to deviate a little from what I am intending to talk about, which is a pretty awful habit of mine, I know. Uh, then the only creatures, women are the only creatures as such on God's green earth who are capable of bearing God. But it should be said also that they're external from the normal creation taken as they are from Adam's rib in the purely biblical context and therefore considered by some theologians in particular as not in the ordinary course of nature, rather as what is called preternaturum, creatures formed outside of nature. Now others didn't feel that way and thought that women were in fact direct intentions of nature, the opposing view of intentio naturae universalis. But it should be remembered that a prevailing religious view of women was that held by St Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, who regarded her as not only non-human, but to go a bit further, indeed as monstrous. The idea that women were formed preternaturum was actually advanced by Desiderius Erasmus in the early 15th century, in his 15, uh, sorry, early 16th century, in his 1509 essay in Praise of Folly, where he suggested that, quote, Plato seems to doubt whether woman should be classed with brute beasts or rational beings. It's extraordinary. Plato, debitare videtur, utro in genere, ponat mulerium rationalium, animatium brutorum. Extraordinary comment. And in their imperfection, Aquinas believed them to actually be equated with congenital monsters, with intersexual beings, which they were interested in, so-called hermaphrodites, and other mistakes of nature can be found in some of his writings which are translated from his De Veritate. He describes them in, Ital in uh, uh, Latin as Nisi ergo esset aliqua virtus quae interderet femineum sexum generatio feminae, that the womanly sex esset omnino a casu, in this case secret et aliorum monstrorum, that it was a, 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 a monstrous. Just for interest, Martin Luther in the uh, early part of the 15th century and John Calvin, the 16th century, also considered a woman an imperfect product of her hostile and adverse internal bodily climate, in effect that all women were what could be called monkey. They were just a bit off. And as the physical evidence of a biological weakness of intellect and this extraordinary Renaissance, pre-Renaissance view of the notion of woman. Indeed, much of their discussion centred around whether she possessed a soul, the same debate concerning whether primitive tribes were soulless, why God had placed them on, on the earth in the first place, and whether time spent in their conversion to Christianity, to Catholicism, was wasted or not. These were the issues that were discussed by theologians. The Franciscan friar Duns Scotus in the mid-13th century remained convinced that in heaven, only with the exception of Virgin Mary, that all women would be resurrected as men. 
Now, I'm getting off topic here, but I'll return to these theories in another podcast in this series, which considered women as inverted anatomical equivalents of men, the vulva merely an inverted penis, the ovaries hidden testicles, and so on, because this theory which subordinated the anatomy of women in study led to the rather unfortunate, and some might say these theologians are kind of homoerotic or certainly narcissistic conclusion that men who were engaged in sexual intercourse with women were in fact also engaged in communion with some sort of inverted version of themselves. Yes, I think this rather tricky theological painted corner, as one could say, is worth another podcast all to itself. Let's get back then to uh, monsters. The most feared seem to be not some totally alien creature, but more, as I've said, a decrepit or salivating example of ourselves. Their anatomy is important, um, <coughs> which is why I've subtitled this podcast The Anatomy of a Monster. Now, I must start by saying that I'm not an authority on ogres and devils or monsters or on how they've been captured in film, for example. But my point is that we identify what is human and we distinguish what is not. Steven Spielberg commented that for his film The War of the Worlds, which I think is an exceptionally uh, good film, that he made his aliens with three legs so that it would appear to be an uncomfortable appearance that separated them from humans. And that might be true. But the tripod aliens were certainly, I don't think, particularly frightening. Alien pedestrians, perhaps, or more likely pedestrian aliens. But go figure, the game-changing book by Max Brooks, World War Z, if anyone's seen that film, which became a very successful film with Brad Pitt. In the film, a virus has zombified the whole world, and you can see this instantaneous dramatic change when someone's infected. Go see it, it's a good film. What can I say? Zombies like the taste of human flesh, and they apparently really like to chow down on brains. Brooks is actually a comedic writer for Saturday Night Live, and he was quoted as saying that, quote, since the Night of the Living Dead, which was George Romero's film, stepped onto the silver screen... Their greatest enemy, that is zombies, has not been hunters, but critics, unquote. It's a great line. I like that line, which comes from uh, an article, The Might of the Living Dead, by Stefan Jemjavonich, in published in 2009. As the senior editor at Tor Publishing, Susan Chang says also, quote, zombies have no personalities. They don't have a romantic aspect like vampires do. You're not going to fall in love with a zombie, she says. You're going to run like hell from one. But Asma points out that the almost exponential interest in a monster culture is a little mystifying. We've seen it particularly with all of these Marvel films now. 
but he links it to 9-11, to the Iraq war, to economic slowdown, to COVID isolation. There's all these kinds of articles. And that infuses this idea, modernistic idea, of anatomy uh, and its relevance in the distinction of humans and aliens. But there don't seem to be any discrete triggers or breaks on this particular alien interest. Henry Morley, the 19th century social commentator, as I think I've said before in another podcast, but in his book Bartholomew Farm, said that the 18th century was a century in which the public developed, quote-unquote, a taste for monsters. Just think of the public hype a little bit later on of the Elephant Man by Sir Frederick Treves or the obsession with the collection of the bones and skeletons of giants and dwarves by the surgeon John Hunter or his French counterpart Georges Cuvier chasing the so-called Hottentot Venus who was a South African woman, Satya Bartman, with her exorbitant, luxurious buttocks filled with brown storage fat, a pygmy condition called steatopigia. So he was the guy who performed her autopsy and kept bits of her, the bits that fascinated him at any rate, in a formal unized jar in his office. The idea of the monster has undergone an evolution from the mystical and religious to the genetic. Medievalists reveled in the biblical traditions of satanic forces, the Greeks and the Romans prodigiously claiming them as catastrophic portents from the gods. But some Indian villagers consider them reverent, godly gifts, these congenital so-called monsters, congenital anomalies. The formation of many of these monsters, really bad term, is of course godly, benevolent or otherwise. The Greek chroniclers brought the stories, Hesiod in his epic poem Theogony, um, drawing the tale of Echidna, rather benign little animal here in Australia, but which was half a python and half a nymph, and which brought forth the most frightening offspring, the hound Orthus, the fifty-headed hound of Hades, Cerberus, and the hydra with three heads that breathed fire, a lion head, a dragon head, and a goat head. And of course, the deadly but super-intelligent progeny, the Sphinx. And these were direct descendants from the gods themselves, gods gone bad before the idea of mutations really existed, evil that left room for heroes to vanquish, that leads in lineage directly into the Lord of the Rings or right up to Harry Potter, the same stories of good and evil. Of course, Tsar Peter the Great in the early 18th century pushed out an ukaz, which was a monster decree that paid everyone for living or dead congenital animal or human monsters that could be brought to Moscow or later St. Petersburg, so that these were brought from all over the Russian dominions. There was a, a decree with penalties for those who didn't do so. Peter had his own hermaphrodites performing in his museum as live exhibits, his personal giant butler, bourgeois, whom... Uh, of whose skeleton is still displayed in the Kunstkamera Museum and whose preserved heart and genitals are still there on display. Well, the genitals have been removed. 
and lost in a fire his dwarf, the usher Foma Ignatiev, who, despite working for the Tsar for 15 years, he was embalmed and stuffed into a jar like a revered pet parrot. The monsters, at least in our imagination, are far more diverse and far more interesting than those who came to destroy them. The minotaurs, the werewolves, the centaurs, behemoths, leviathans, harpies, banshees, sirens, trolls, ogres, the golems, cyclops, and then the vampires, lycans and, and the mummies. Mary Shelley probably has a lot to answer for, triggering the Victorian Gothic obsession with her Frankenstein and Bram Stoker with his Whitby tale of Vlad the Rakul. Human imagination, perhaps more than that of the gods themselves, can create new mythologies and novel ways of killing. The stories of old, however, are more disgusting than anything more recent, including the great Stephen King himself, I would venture to say. These Greek monsters once even unsuccessfully stormed Olympus itself, but failed to overthrow the gods. What would the world have been like had they succeeded? Saturn, not content with castrating his father and banishing him, then devoured his own children out of fear that they might usurp him. And Francisco Goya's paintings of his devouring by Saturn, which I saw at the Prado Museum in, in Madrid, left a very deep impact on me, I must say. Well, what has all this got to do with anatomy? The historical anatomy museums, those of the great Italian entrepreneurs like Ferdinando Cospi or Ulisse Aldrovandi, some of whose collection can still be seen at the Palazzo Po in Bologna, spoke to the world of great monsters. Aldrovandi in particular was fascinated with sea creatures that were typically shown on the edge of maps of the world and left in the unknown edges right up until the 17th century or so. The private collection of the great Friedrich Reich, whom I've discussed in other podcasts, contained congenital monsters, but later in life he hid them away and members of the general public had to apply to see them. Certainly the Cyclops babies and those without a forebrain, the Anencephalix, were a prominent part of our university anatomy museum in uh, Melbourne in Australia, but now they've disappeared. I don't know where they've disappeared to, though. The French entrepreneur who called himself Dr Spitzner, but who was ultimately successfully sued by the General Medical Council over his qualifications, or lack thereof, regularly displayed a wax moulage of the two Tocci brothers, the two Tocci twins, Giovanni Battista and Giacomo, who were joined at the hip. They had two torsos, two heads and two legs. They had two hearts, four lungs, but a shared small and large intestine on just two legs. I have one of their old catalogues at home, which are still available through second-hand booksellers. Each of these twins could only feel their side and not the other. And it was said that Giacomo was a, an idiot, but Giovanni was artistic and clever. Giovanni was quiet and introspective, and he liked beer. Giacomo was outgoing, but he preferred mineral water. And both spoke fluent French, Italian and German. And they both married, but whether they had any children 
is a little unclear. Well, I've rambled on in this podcast about monsters and the like, perhaps a fill-in podcast of musings on aberrant anatomy before the next one. But whilst I was thinking about all of this, I, I couldn't forget what Nietzsche had warned. He said that whoever fights monsters should take care not to become one themselves. I'm going to deviate in the next few podcasts and um, just revisit a little bit of the broader history of anatomy and its link to art and how anatomy has come to be illustrated, not only in the techniques of dissection, but in an illustrative tradition, and then how it's been brought publicly, the anatomy of the human cadaver, into the public museum spaces. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.